You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is from Ecclesiastes 2. We're going to start in verse 12 if you need to follow along with me. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. And then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. And then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. And yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. And even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, in the late 1930s, author J.R.R. Tolkien, who is the author of The Lord of the Rings, he wrote a short story that he titled Leaf by Niggle. And in the story, we meet a character, and his name is Niggle, and he's a painter. And Niggle is one who's constantly working, but he's never really accomplishing anything. In fact, in Old Oxford English, the word Niggle means to work in a fiddling or ineffective way, spending time unnecessarily on the petty details. And so he, he kind of lives up to his name. And as the story unfolds, we read that Nigel, he has visions of painting this tree, this beautiful and magnificent tree. But all he can ever seem to get out is a leaf. Because he spends so much time on the petty, unnecessary details of that leaf. See, even though he's only working on one leaf at a time, though, Nigel, he can see the whole tree. He can see the lands beyond it, that you can see through it. He can see the birds of the air nesting in it. 
But when his neighbor Parrish comes by, all he ever sees is a leaf or two on the canvas and big smudges of color. He definitely doesn't see a tree. And see, we, we learn that Nigel, he's on a time crunch. He has a long journey ahead of him, one that we, as we read, we realize it, it signifies death. And he needs to pack for this because this journey, it has, it has a set date. He can't escape or delay it. But he's worried he's not going to be able to finish his painting in time. But things always seem to get in the way. His neighbor Parrish, for instance, always comes by asking for favors. And even when Nigel says, like, you don't really need this favor, he usually obliges and helps him anyway. Even when it's to his own detriment, even when it's going to procrastinate and delay his ability to finish his painting. But all in all, what happens is Nigel gets distracted and delayed long enough that he never finishes his painting. And he ends up having to leave it undone as he heads out on his journey. And later in the story, we, we read that the big parchment that he was working on, his life's work, all it amounted to was ended up patching Parrish's roof from the rain. All his time, all his toil, he's unable to take it with him, and he's unable to leave it with someone who's going to be able to complete it. See, this is our fourth week in our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. And among other things, this book is about the search for the meaning of life. It holds before us the question of what is it all for? And the preacher, he's on this quest to answer this question for us. He's trying to figure it out. And what we've said thus far is ultimately a life of meaning found here in the things under the sun is actually a life of no meaning at all. And therefore, we must place our faith, we must put our hope, we must put our meaning in the one that's found beyond the sun. That's what the overarching point of this book is. But today, in our text, what the preacher's doing, he's finally telling us explicitly something that he's only hinted at thus far implicitly. Death comes for everybody. And ultimately, all that you have done in this life, if, it, if it's just been here under the sun, it's going to be forgotten. It doesn't matter if you live your life with an abundance of anxious toil or an abundance of apathetic indifference, you have to leave it here. But like we point out each week, it's not all doom and gloom, I promise. The preacher is forcing us to look soberly at the scarcity of the conditions here under the sun so that we can see the abundance available to those who live their lives in view of the one who exists over it. Things that Paul writes in Romans 8, we can know for certain are true even though we can't see them yet. And this is my main point today. While both anxiety and apathy are rewarded with death in this life, abundance is the promised gift for the one who pleases God. Anxiety and apathy, all of your labor here is going to be rewarded with death. But abundance is available to those that please God. And so let's pick it up in verse 12. Read with me in verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what's already been done. See, though in your Bibles, uh, there's a section heading in between verses 11 and 12. And in fact, in my Bible, there's a page turn in between 11 and 12. The, these two verses actually go together. At the end of all of his pursuits into pleasure that we looked at last week, he, he, he begins to consider all of his actions. He's, he's considering everything that he did under the sun. And he concludes that everything was vanity. It was ultimately pointless. And in verse 12, we see him do two things, right? Right? 
uh, in the second half of the verse, first, he, he closes out his ventures into pleasure and he rubber stamps them as definitive. Right? He says, nothing further needs to be done because no one can do more than I did. No king coming after me can possibly have more joy, can possibly have more power, can possibly have more pleasure. I did everything, and therefore we can say, we can close the chapter on that one. We can say, nothing more can be done. That's a pointless venture, pleasure. But secondly, we see him redirect himself back to the pursuit of wisdom. But this time it's in the realm of works, not just the realm of intellect. Right? And I want us to note, when he says wisdom and madness and folly, he's actually talking about two things and not three. Remember a few weeks ago in chapter 1, verse 17, he says madness and folly are, are one thing. And he says that they are the opposite of wisdom. And so basically now he's saying, knowledge only created more sorrow. And there was no meaning there. He said pleasure was fun while it lasted, but that was the, the problem with it. It didn't last. Let's see if my work can give me meaning. Maybe living a wise life will help me find the meaning that I'm looking for. And to be honest with you, his experiment seems to start off well. Right? In verse 13, he says, um, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. And this is a pretty general and obvious conclusion. He's basically pointing out what's already apparent. It's easier to get where you're going when you can see. Right? Darkness is disorienting. In the Bible, those who walk in darkness are often doing so intentionally because they're trying to cover up their sin. They're trying to cover up their foolishness. But here, what he's pointing out is that it can also lead people to simply do things wrong accidentally. If you can't see where you're going, you're more prone to trip and fall upon the obstacles in your path. And so the preacher uses this little proverbial illustration and he likens it to wisdom and folly. And he basically says, a wise person can see through the eyes in their head, but fools are walking in unending darkness. And so his conclusion is, it's just better to walk in the light. It's better to walk in wisdom. Just open your eyes. You're going to live a better life. You're going to make less mistakes when you walk this way. But at the end of verse 14, he begins to detail the grand realization he's come to. It's the realization that undergirds everything else that we're going to cover in this passage. And it's this, death gets everybody. And I feel like you can almost read his surprise. It, it reads to me as, all, as though he's, he's startled by this. Right? In verse 15, he begins to say, Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. He's wondering aloud what many of us have wondered in silence. What was it all for? What was the point of this? Death is coming for us all. The grave does not discriminate. The preacher sees that there's no enduring remembrance for those that have died. Literally, it's, it means that there is no eternal memorial for them. He's saying eventually the sticker for your loved one on your car is going to be sold with it when it's sold for spare metal and scrap parts. 
He's saying eventually the flowers at the corner where the hit and run happened and it took that young girl's life, they're going to shrivel up and blow away. He says eventually the tattoo on your shoulder for the friend that you lost is just going to be buried with you in the grave. They're not going to remember you forever. History is going to forget you. He's saying that ultimately our lives will be defined by that little dash that goes between the dates on our gravestone. There's a cemetery right across the street from where I used to work. And I found it to be a healthy practice to regularly go and walk through the gravestones on my breaks. I found that frequently being acquainted with my mortality helped me to put my life into perspective. And so what the preacher is saying here is is that it's good for us to soberly contemplate our actions and our inactions done here under the sun, done here in this life. And our mortality is a topic that he's going to come back to later in the book. And so I don't feel the need to have to exhaust it right now. But what we should focus on here is the preacher's response to the fact of death, his long journey that awaits him. Because his instinctive responses to this fact are also our instinctive responses to this fact. What we see here is that the the preacher responds by introducing us to the fraternal twins of anxiety and apathy. And, and, and if these twins have personalities, I'd say that anxiety is the introvert, while apathy is the extrovert. And they're fraternal twins, so they come from the same womb, but they're very different. But they're ultimately accomplishing the same thing. These are both ways that we evade the fact of our death. And so let's see how he engages in both. First, let's look at anxiety, the introvert. Now, I call anxiety the introvert because over the two, of the two responses, this is the one that he actually sees in hindsight. He didn't realize that the anxiety had been there the whole time until he really starts to look back because anxiety wasn't going out of its way to make itself known. In fact, it was probably going by the alias of work ethic. But look, remember back in verse 15, the preacher says, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? See, he's telling us, he, of course he's lived his life knowing that the fact of death is coming. Nobody can be completely oblivious to that. But he's been working under the assumption that all the anxiety that he labors with, all of his work ethic, all of his wisdom he puts into his action, it's actually going to produce something of lasting meaning. Right? It's like when someone speeds by you on the road and you guys end up parked right next to each other at the next stoplight. It's like, what, what were you going so fast for? Why was I going so slow? We're here at the same time. He says, why have I toiled so hard? Why have I been so anxious? In verse 23, he says, I've had so many sleepless nights over something that's not even going to matter. And I think this is how many of us approach our lives. We subconsciously live our lives in anxious toil, trying to do something that's going to matter, that's going to endure after us. And now maybe you say, I'm not trying to change the world, but I bet you'd love for there to be some meaningful imprint that shows that you existed once you've gone. But like Nigel, all we're doing is we're toiling. We're trying to evade preparations for our long journey. 
This is just one of the primary ways that we, in, we, we deal with the fact of our impending death, right? We move jobs because the pay has an extra zero, all while forgetting that the currency of this world is not accepted on the other side of the border of the grave. We're absent from our homes and our families and our communities because we trick ourselves into believing that they need my extra pay more than they need my extra presence. And even when we are there, we, we refuse to rest, always finding something that needs doing, always making improvements, always checking email, always toiling but never gaining from any of it. Right, the preacher says, what's the point of this surplus of toil that I've invested myself into if it doesn't result in a surplus of profit that I can actually take with me? Why have I missed out on so much when it's not going to matter? Why have I been so very wise? And I want to ask you the same thing. What are you working so hard for? What are you trying to accomplish why all of the anxious toil? In his book on Ecclesiastes, Pastor John Amwachekwa writes, Death is the great leveler. All of your life's work is just that. Your life's work. The teacher hated his work for this very reason. He knew he wouldn't even be able to rest in peace because eventually someone was going to undo his work, squandering his legacy and dishonoring his memory. And that's what we see here. But between verses 18 and 22, he's dwelling on the uselessness of his toil. He mentions the word toil eight times in those five verses. He is fed up. He hates that he's worked so hard and it didn't gain him anything. He can't stand the fact that he's amassed so much wealth and was so successful just to think someone after him. One of his kids who saw the grind is maybe going to dump it all down the drain once he's died. And that leads him to the other response that we see in this text, his other way of dealing with death and its apathy. And so let's look at apathy, the extrovert. Now, apathy is the twin that the preacher knows is there. In verse 17, he says, I hated life because all my work produced for me was nothing but grief. In verse 18, he says, once I realized I was going to have to leave it to someone who didn't even work for it and who knows what they're going to do with it, I even hated the work. And in verse 20, he says, So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Now, his turning about in verse 20, that is an important pivot point for us in the text. Because he's, we see that he's come to the end of these experimentations that he's been doing. He's been pursuing these various paths to try to find meaning in this life under the sun, but he's come to the end of himself. He says, I've looked at all of it, and it's, it's of no value. So instead of continuing to press forward to try to find something that's of meaning, he says, I'm done. I'm fed up with all of it. Instead, he gives himself over to despair because he says, there is no point in any of this. Alan Noble, who's an author um, and professor at a Christian university in Oklahoma, he wrote a book recently called You Are Not Your Own. And at one point, he's unpacking this dynamic of anxiety and apathy that he observes in our modern Western culture, but particularly how he observes it in his students. And what he sees is that the, he says this world makes all of life a competition. 
Everything in our life is a competition. And we learn this from a very young age. Right? My kids, for instance, they're five and two. And every day when we get home, they jump out of the truck and they race to the front door. And someone is left crying. And unless I hold the five-year-old back, it's usually the two-year-old. It's because even they understand that winning is better than losing. Or to put it in the terms the world uses, a winner is of more value than a loser. But it's not just that. We make everything into a competition, right? Spelling bees. We have competitions about spelling. Goodreads, you can... You can I, I, I use Goodreads to track my reading throughout the year and I can see what books I've read, but you can stack yourself up against those that you know. You can see, are they meeting their reading challenge? Am I re- meeting mine? Oh, well, I'm not meeting mine, but I've read more books than them. Reading has become a competition. And the list goes on and on and on. And what happens is we realize that all of life is set up to be a competition. And when we see that we're going to have to win every race, I'm going to have to outdo every single person in order to get to where I want to go, and I realize I don't think I can do that, oftentimes what we do is we give up. We just say, I'm just going to cut my losses. There's no point in investing all of the effort if it doesn't mean anything. And what we're calling apathy in his book, Noble calls resignation, and he writes this. When a young person stops coming to class, binge watches friends for 36 hours, and can't seem to get out of bed, it's almost always because the student cares too much and not too little. They don't choose to tap out of life because they think winning is meaningless. They tap out because they're taught winning means everything and they cannot envision a path to winning. And that's what we see here. The preacher doesn't despise his work and hate his life because he doesn't care at all. It's because he doesn't, or it's because he cares about it too much. He's saying, I've put everything into these experiments and it's not going to matter. He says, I've given my whole life to this and it's just going to be snatched from me by death and wasted by my, my successors. And in verse 21, the preacher calls this a great evil. So he's not just upset with this. He's applying moral weight to it. He's not just saying, I don't like this. He's saying this is wrong. And so at the end of this chapter and a half experiment, at the end of these three weeks that we've been looking at it, we find that the preacher's just done. He's done with it all, and he's ready to make some overarching conclusions for us. And in verses 24 and 25, he says, listen, it doesn't matter if you know a lot or a little. It doesn't matter if you experience a lot or a little. It doesn't matter if you work a lot or a little. He says, just enjoy what the hand of God has given to you. He says, embrace the fact that you're a creature and enjoy what the hand of your creator has allowed you to enjoy. But knowing all that we know now, knowing all that the preacher has shown us, knowing the beginning from the end, so to speak, how can we do that? How can we possibly not just give ourselves over to apathy? Are we supposed to ignorantly just embrace anxiety? In the movie The Matrix, just before Cypher betrays Morpheus and Neo over to Agent Smith, and he's having dinner with him, he says this. He says, I know this steak doesn't exist. I know when I put it in my mouth, the Matrix is telling my brain that it's juicy and delicious. After nine years, do you know what I've realized? Ignorance is bliss. 
Is that true? Is ignorance bliss? Is this how we're supposed to live now? In this willful ignorance of what lies ahead of us? Remember Niggle? See, as the story continues after Niggle dies, he's on his long journey. And he hears two voices detailing what should be done with him. And as many have pointed out, the two voices seem to signify in the story justice and mercy. And see, justice is pointing out all of the things that Niggle didn't do in his life. Or maybe all of the things that he, he should have done in his life or didn't do well enough. While mercy says, yeah, you know, that's true. But what he did do, he did it expecting no reward in return. And what we see in the story is that mercy wins out. Mercy wins out in his story. And Niggle is sent on into the heavenly afterlife. And after he gets there, he's, he's on a bike and he's exploring. And I think at one point he falls down off of his bike and he's getting himself up. Tolkien writes this. He writes, before him stood the tree. His tree. Finished. And he, re- and he writes that Niggle cries out, it's a gift. And he was referring to his art and also to the result. But he was using the word quite literally. See, Niggle's saying, I just heard justice detail all of the things that I did wrong. All of the good that I didn't engage in. I don't deserve this. Why is it here? And so Niggle just continues to gaze at the tree and he finds that everything he ever envisioned is there. All of the things that he left undone, the things that he wasn't able to get to. All of it is there before him. See, in verse 26, the preacher says, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This is also vanity and striving after the wind. What we see here, as the preacher closes out his experiment, what we see is grace. And as cliche as it may be, but I, pr- I pray that it never becomes cliche to us. Grace changes everything. You notice that God gives all of the things the preacher has spent his time pursuing. Wisdom and knowledge and joy. All of these things that he's been trying to find under the sun. God gives them to him. See, the preacher's telling us the sinner stores up what he can't keep here on this earth, but to the one who pleases God, they receive as a gift what they could never earn. See, the sinner is spending all of his time gathering and collecting, toiling, working really hard, but it's in vain. It's striving after the wind. The sinner's trying to earn his reward, but it's a gift. It can't be earned. It must be received. See, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that it's the meek who inherit the earth. It's not the wise It's not the strong and powerful. It's the meek. It's the humble. It's the lowly of heart. And the only way to know that God is perfectly pleased in you, that you're one who perfectly pleases God, is to put your faith in the one who perfectly pleased God for you. That's the only way to know. Listen, in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus had all of the wealth. He had all of the riches. He is God from very God, eternally existing. Yet he gave it up and took on our poverty so that we could have it. 
And hear me, this is wealth. This wealth isn't something that death can snatch from you. This is something that is only more fully realized on the other side of the grave. It's why Paul can say in his letter to the Philippians that it would be better for him that he died so that he can go and be with Christ. See, Paul knows that for the Christian, death isn't a cul-de-sac that traps us in and we can't get out of it. Death is an intersection that we drive through to further abundance. See, Jesus lived the perfect life here under the sun. And he truly and perfectly pleased God. He had unending wisdom. He had unending knowledge and joy. And he deserved it. But he gave it all up at the cross so that we could have it. And now we don't have to choose between anxiety or apathy. Instead, by faith, we inherit abundance. As the Apostle Peter says it like this, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of our Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. This is something that our hands can't toil and create for us. Our work can't make this abundance better or worse because the eternal blessing that we receive has been earned for us by Jesus Christ. We inherit all that he has worked for. And not only do we receive this abundance as a gift, but now we are liberated to truly work in this world. We can work from the abundance promised to us, not in an effort to earn it. See, to put your faith in Christ sets you loose from the chains of anxiety of this world. This is the solution uh, for the despairing blanket, the weight of apathy that you feel. It is all redeemed. Our work is, is redeemed and it matters now. And now in Christ, you're set free to really work and not toil. To create, to cultivate, to enjoy the wisdom and knowledge that you've been given to joyfully be distracted by your labor labor and in service to others, to rest from your labor and take your hands off of it, knowing that this is not something that defines you, to splurge a little bit and spend some money, enjoy a nice meal, buy that pair of shoes that you want, go on that vacation. See, because Jesus says your your treasure is not here where moth and rust destroy, destroy, instead lay it up in heaven where moth and dust can't destroy it. See, the gospel tells us that like Nigel, we'll enter the paradise someday to be with Christ and see that everything that we ever did, all the distractions, all of the service, all of the things that we felt like we left undone and never got around to, that we handed off to others, we're ultimately working toward a perfect fulfillment in Christ, greater than our toil could ever build for us. Friends, that day is coming where we will one day see Christ face to face, see the fullness of abundance that we spent our entire lives longing for, and we'll see it realized perfectly in the face of our Savior. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you.